Okay, that's better. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. Let's pray. Loving God, help us to understand the scriptures that we have heard this morning. And so in understanding, help, them to help us to put them into practice in our lives. Amen. Thank you to Katie for the warm welcome. It's lovely to be back at St. Barney's. And thank you to Stephen for inviting me this morning to preach and to celebrate. Um, I would love you to make sure that you have on your tablets, phones, or Bibles um, in sequence. So we've got Psalm 127 up there, and then we'll need to go to Hebrews 9, and then we'll go to Mark 12. The text I want to take for this morning is from the psalm above my head. Unless the Lord builds the house, their labor is but lost that build it. I wonder if you've ever watched any of those what seem to be endless renovation programs. Um, I got caught the other night and found myself watching a, a young couple in Kyneton um, renovating a house. It looked spectacular. Um, they even, uh, what they did was they went back to all the tradespeople who had the old skills. So they had a mortise lock on the front door. They didn't want to throw it away. They wanted to uh, sort of renovate it. So they got someone who knew all about 19th century mortise locks. You've got to be pretty special to know about 19th century mortise locks. And the guy took it all apart and put it in some liquid and it came back to its beautiful brass original. And then they got a couple of guys who did the rendering. And uh, in the house that they were renovating, the original render had been with horsehair. So they made the new render and they got some horsehair and they redid it. And perhaps you saw it. Um, and then the husband, who was an absolute guy to go all to back to the original, sourced um, uh, the original chandeliers, except, of course, they're electric now, uh, but they looked original. And so they put all this thing together, and it looked absolutely fantastic. And I thought, right, I'll give up being a bishop, and I'll go and live in Kinderton. Seems to be the place to go to. How do we allow the Lord Jesus to build the house of our lives? And are we prepared to put as much energy and time as we might do in a renovation of a literal house? This is a fascinating psalm and one of my favorites. It's one of what's called the psalm of ascents. Uh, remember the word psalm in Hebrew means song. So they were sung. And this is one of the psalms that was sung as the people of God walked up the hill into Jerusalem on the festival days to the temple. Now the evangelical scholar Michael Wilcox has made what I find a fascinating um, theory. Uh, although in your Bibles and mine it will say Solomon wrote it, he suggests that actually maybe it was from the time of another great Jewish leader, 500 years later. That was the leader who brought God's people out of uh, captivity in Babylon, brought them back to Jerusalem, and oversaw the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And his name was Nehemiah. And if you look at this psalm, it could actually fit for that. 
unless the Lord builds the house. If you know the story of Nehemiah, you know that right from day one, when he arrives back in Jerusalem, there is trouble, strife, opposition. People are trying to stop God's work. And we find that. As Christians, we often find as we live our lives, there's often times when we get opposition. Sometimes we get it a sense of conflict within. Sometimes it's at work. Sometimes it's uh, in our family life, where people say, no, we don't like this stand that you've taken. That's just an idea. Metaphorically, this psalm is about how we build our lives in Christ. I gave my life to Christ when I was a teenager, and a little while later, I was asked by the a church I went to, if I'd give a testimony. And I was trying to look for a picture about what it was for me to become a Christian. And uh, as you can probably tell, I come from England. And uh, when you grow up in England, you become aware of a number of things, and one of the things is old buildings. You can just about fall over them in England. And uh, I had an aunt who used to take me round old buildings. I must tell you, it was willingly. It was, not, uh, it was not subversive. And I went round lots of old buildings. And every so often as you went round them, big houses, country houses, you'd always come to the same thing. And it would be a red rope, and it would say, no admittance. Or it would say, staff only and you'd know you couldn't go through the door, even though my aunt was Irish, and she'd say, I think we should go through the door. <laughs> it doesn't say trespassers won't be prosecuted, so they'll just say no, but it'd be nice to see what's on the other side of the door. And when I was talking about what it's like to invite Christ into my life, I used that picture of the red rope. I said that when you ask Jesus into your life, you have to take the red rope down and the no admittance sign down and you open the doors and you say to Jesus, it's all yours. All the things I've been ashamed of, all the things I'm afraid of, all the things I've never told anybody, it's all yours. And that's what I used as a picture in this testimony that I gave. And then I said, because it's important to know, that when you do that, you don't enter a place of terror, but you enter a place of cleansing and freedom and forgiveness. And I said to the people when I gave this testimony, I've never felt as free as being a disciple of Jesus. Psalm 127. So that's a thought. Let's move to Hebrews 9. Chapter, uh, chapter 9, verses 19 to um, 28. And it doesn't matter if, uh, as long as you have it in front of you. The Hebrews, I find, is a difficult book um, for lots of different reasons. It's a Jewish book, Jewish-Christian book, written for, I think, principally Jewish Christians. And so it's trying to come from the Jewish understanding of sacrifice and there are lots of quotes from the Old Testament, although we don't have them in this passage uh, this morning. But it's important to understand the book of Hebrews. It's one of the key books. 
So this is my way into preaching about Hebrews this morning. Uh, one of the things um, that I have discovered in the last four months is a detective series. I'm a detective series junkie. Um, and I've been, uh, I was introduced to a French-Canadian series, um, and I am just besotted. Well, that's probably not a good word for a bishop to use, but I'm just um, gripped by them. I'm on uh, volume four, and I'm told there are another 16 or so, hundreds and hundreds. And you know what detective series are like, whether you watch Veer on the telly or, or others, they're always pretty much the same thing. So the first few chapters, the, the body appears, and then the author brings before you, the reader, a whole list of people who are possible suspects, and most of them are red herrings because you know they're not going to be, they can't all have been the murderer, unless it's the murder on the Orient Express. Um, and, and so you have to discern, and it's a kind of tussle between you and the, and the writer. You know, did it, was it Colonel Plum in the, you know, in the rectory with a piece of lead piping, or was it Mrs. Jones with a hunting rifle out on the, near the swimming pool, or who was it and who did it? And then finally the detective comes and gives you all the answers, if you haven't worked them out already, and basically clears the ground until finally the real culprit and the real motives are made clear. This is what the book of Hebrews is doing in this passage. The writer is telling you the real story about sacrifice and the real story, and the real meaning of Jesus. Follow with me, if you will, please. Verse 19. And forgive me if my version is slightly different to yours, but it's... For when every commandment had been told to all the people of Moses, including in accordance with the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the scroll itself, the scroll of the commandments, and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. And then he sprinkles uh, the tent of meeting and the vessels used in worship. And what this part of the passage is saying is it is without the shedding of blood, nothing is made holy. So in Moses, they're in the desert, and this is the law of God, that with the shedding of goats and calves and the sprinkling, the people were literally sprinkled with blood. But it had to happen every single year. Because every year the goat was taken into the Holy of Holies and the high priest laid his hands representing the sins of all the people and placed the sins on the goat. And then the goat was cast out. I think it's Leviticus 24, Stephen will correct me if it isn't. And that's where we get the phrase scapegoat. But it happened every single year, brothers and sisters, because the power of the shed blood was of humans. And then, look what he says. The real story, brothers and sisters. 
Thus, page 23, it was necessary for the sketches of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own, for then he would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. And just, verse 27, just as it is appointed for mortals to die once, so Christ, and this is the key verse of this passage, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting. And that's the joy of being a Christian, that Christ has died once and for all, that it is Christ's blood on the cross that enables us to be free, to be forgiven, to be empowered. And do you know what it frees us from? Martin Luther once said, I sit at the seat, I sit at the foot of the cross. I am the most bound of all, bound by sin, and I am the most free of all, freed by the blood of cross of Christ. Jesus' blood frees us from de death. We have no more, nothing to be afraid of. Death holds no more fear for us. Frees us from sin. There is no sin that Jesus' blood cannot wash away. And it frees us from the devil. St. Augustine, one of the church saints, great teachers, once said, the devil is an angry dog, but he is chained. If you walk inside the limit of the chain, you have been warned, but he is chained. And when the second coming comes, he will be cast down forever. Hallelujah. Mark 12, 38 to 44. Now this passage uh, is almost the last teaching of Jesus in Mark's Gospel. Um, in chapter 13, we come across a thing called the Markan Apocalypse, which is Jesus' teaching on the end times. There's a little bit of teaching in chapter 14, but chapter 12 takes place but days from Jesus' arrest. It is a chapter full of the hostility of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians and the Sadducees. It's a chapter where Jesus is being um, got at all the time. And yet it is a chapter of great teaching from him. And these two passages, the one about the flowing robes, as Stephen said to me before we walked in, we will, he said, of course, walk in the seat where nobody wants to sit, which is the front row, because it's an Anglican church. So he said, but we will walk in the flowing robes. No, I digress. Um, so uh, the first thing is about uh, Jesus' uh, denunciation of the scribes, and the second is about the widow's offering. And what is happening here, because it's the last teaching Jesus does, 
is that he is drawing a line in the sand. And he is saying to the teachers, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, you are either with me or you are against me. You are either with the widow who gives everything because if Jesus calls us, he asks of us to give us, for us to give him our lives. Everything. But if you want, he said, to be like the Pharisees and the scribes wandering around in flowing robes whose hearts are whited sepulchres, then you choose that. But this is the line in the sand. Let's have a look at it. Both uh, paragraphs, you will notice, are linked by one word, and that is the word widow. So it is the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. If you go back to Exodus 28, you'll see what it was what the original um, beginning was for uh, people to wear vestments in the leading of worship. And I can tell you, it didn't sound anything like that. It's about humility. It's about the privilege of serving. It's about godliness. And so the Levites who led the worship through the wilderness and in the life of Israel were there to serve. But these people, Jesus say, have forgotten that. And sometimes it is important for the church as an organization to remember that we are called to serve. And in serving, we are called to be aware of what is going on. I am um, the chaplain for the Mother's Union in this diocese. And this month, the Mother's Union is supporting and putting out to all its members uh, this document, which some of you may well have seen. I'll read you the words because you won't be able to see it from me. This is a state government document that is um, 16 days later this month, uh, the 25th of November to the 10th of December, under the title, Don't Be Silent When You See Violence. And this is a... a um, Campaign's probably not the right word, but it's a, an awareness about stopping violence against women. Let me read you three things that a community survey um, found in the last year. And you may well know these already. I didn't. One in five Australians, I found this absolutely breathtaking in its arrogance, one in five Australians believe that domestic violence is a normal reaction to stress and that sometimes a woman can make a man so angry he hits her without meaning to. I may not get through this. One in three Australians believe that if a woman does not leave her abusive partner, then she's responsible for the violence continuing. And two in five Australians would not know where to get outside help for a domestic violence issue. This, brothers and sisters, is a no-brainer. The church has to stand, must stand, will always stand on the side of people 
who are suffering. I pray that, um, I pray for all women in places of violence, that they may God, know God's protection and peace and strength. And I give thanks, although it's a slight, um, for uh, the safety of Cleo. Thank God that she was found. For all the nightmares that everybody went through thinking what might have happened, there she was, and thank God she has returned safely to her family. A line in the sand. The scribes have a habit in this passage of preying on widows and um, basically being a kind of probate liar. They were notorious at the time of Jesus' ministry for using long prayers to impress widows and then offer them their services. I've known your rector for over 15 years, and he is a man of huge integrity. I can never imagine he or any of my clergy doing that. But this is what happened. People were abused because at their moment of vulnerability, they were preyed upon. And Jesus cuts through it with um, searing judgment. They will receive, verse 40, the greater condemnation. And then he moves to the widow's offering. And he sits opposite the treasury. Now, <laughs> I am... Um, I went to a church the other day, and I think you have it here at St. Barney's, where you have a kind of pay pass giving. So that, no, not yet. Okay. All right. Well, I went to a church where you could, you know, use the credit card. Boy, you have no idea what it was like in these days. There were 13 big um, containers around the court of the women in the shape of trumpets. And when you went to give your money there was a priest watching to see how much you gave. And they would say, Bishop Jeremy, $5. Reverend Stephen Daly, $20. Well done. <laughs> In those days, there were three coinages, gold, silver, and copper. So the gold people, it's very noticeable. The silver people, pretty noticeable. Boy, if you've got copper, you don't want to be noticed. But this widow comes and she gives all that she has. My friends, the choice that we always have every day is how much will we give to Jesus? I went through a time in my early Christian life where I thought Christ, following Christ was all about an effort. I had to learn about grace. It's a long learning. But I always thought I had to do more things for Jesus. Must do, get up earlier, pray earlier. Pray at five, not at six. You know, work longer hours. Be a good person. But it's not really like that. It's about accepting Jesus has done it for us and saying, thank you, Lord. F let me follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury 
and all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. How much are we prepared to give? Can we undo the red rope which says no admittance and take down the signs that say staff only and all Jesus and give all to Jesus so that he has control? Of all of our lives, the messy bits and the tidy bits, the presentable bits and the parts we're ashamed of, the bits we tell everybody about and the bits we, boy, do we never tell anybody about. And do we do that because we trust him and he loves us and we seek to love him? And do we do that for his greater glory and for the building up of his house and his everlasting kingdom? The Lord be with you.